0: Now, you know there's two things a pastor should never talk about. Religion and politics in your families. Well, we're going to talk about them both this morning. Now, I need to be careful this morning because I'm not here to endorse a political candidate. I'm not here to endorse a political party. I'm not here to endorse an actual political measure. And we need to be very careful that we guard the pulpit against being a political action committee of a certain group and always talking about politics from the pulpit. You guys have known me. I don't talk about issues and politics a lot from the pulpit. And so when we gather together as the Lord's people on the Lord's day as His church, all those barriers come down. We do not gather around a flag. We gather around Christ and His gospel. So you can be from any political persuasion and and, and whatever group you're with, those labels come crumbling down when we gather on the Lord's day. What we wear is the badge of Christian. And so... It's important for me as your pastor from time to time to address cultural issues. So, a few weeks ago, I was in Phoenix at the Southern Baptist Convention. And I went to a breakfast where Wayne Grudem was the guest speaker. Many of you around here may know who Wayne Grudem is. A lot of our men have gone through his systematic theology. We've benefited greatly from his teachings. He's written a book called Politics According to the Bible. So the first portion of my message comes from Wayne Grudem. I'm going to give him credit for it. Almost everything I'm going to be preaching is is from his material, so I want it to be up front that I'm giving Wayne Grudem credit for this. And so I want you to know that this is not my comfort zone this morning, preaching this message. You guys know me. I'd rather go verse by verse through a book of the Bible and explain it. So we're going to be a little topical this morning, but I think it's important that, as your pastor, I preach the whole counsel of God's Word. Now, here's the basic question for this morning. Should Christians exert any influence in the political process? Okay, I'm glad you answered. (laughs) Notice how I phrased the question very carefully. Should Christians? I did not say, should the church? Churches don't vote. Churches don't support political parties. You as individual Christians, when you walk out this door, you are citizens of the United States of America. You exert influence, okay? So the question is, should you as individual Christians have an influence in the political system? Now, before we answer that question, I'm going to give you Wayne Grudem's five reasons, five wrong views. These are the wrong views. The negative views, the views that are not biblical of how we should relate to the government. Okay, so here's view number one government should compel or force religion. The government should compel or force religion. This is the idea that the government should mandate to us that we should be forced to adopt a particular religion, whatever that religion may be. Now we've seen this played out in history. You remember back in the 1600s, there was the 30 years war between the Protestants and the Catholics, where they battled to see who was going to be in charge of of Europe. And especially in Germany, there were wars fought over, forcing people to be either Protestant or Catholic. We see this in, in Muslim nations today like Saudi Arabia where there's sharia law where you are forced to be a a muslim and follow islam now this was never the intention of the declaration of independence this was never the intention of even the constitution listen to the words of thomas jefferson in 1779 his virginia act of establishing religious freedom listen to what he says he said this be it therefore acted by the general assembly That no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened to suffer on account of his religious opinion or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and maintain their opinions in matters of religion. Basically, what he's saying is that we should not be forced to adopt any particular religious view. Now, it's important what Thomas Jefferson says, yes, but let's go to the scriptures and see what Jesus says. Because in my book, every day, Jesus trumps Thomas Jefferson, okay? Are you, are you okay with that? Hopefully you're okay with that. Matthew 22. Let's look at Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. This is probably a very familiar passage of scripture to you, but I want to set the stage here for what Jesus tells us about two different spheres of influence two different spheres in our world so matthew 22 starting in verse 15 then the pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk and they sent their disciples to him along with the herodians saying teacher we know that you are true and teach the way of god truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not sway you are not swayed by appearances now we could probably spend a whole sermon series on that but just we'll keep going tell us then what you think Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. What Jesus is doing here is he's establishing the fact that there are two spheres. There are things that belong to Caesar, the government, and there are things that belong to God. Now, there's some things that, like the government does, like taxes, That's something the church probably should not get involved in. I should not have to tax you. You give voluntarily of your tithes and offerings. There's some things that the church does that the government should not be involved in at all. And so there are some things that belong to God and there's some things that belong to Caesar. And Jesus is saying there are two separate fields here. And so anytime the things of Caesar impose upon the things of God, you kind of have these two things getting in clash with each other. And so here's another argument. Can you actually force anybody to believe anything? Can it be mandated? If there was a law passed tomorrow in America that said that Christianity is the national religion of America, everybody has to be a Christian, would that that work? Can you mandate heart change? Can you force anyone to become a Christian? Think about the Edict of Milan in 413. You may not even know what the Edict of Milan was. It's when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. What he did was he set the stage for a thousand years of a state church where people were in Christian name only, but they weren't truly regenerated and born again. Nowhere in scriptures do we see Jesus or the apostles trying to use the government to force people to believe Christianity. They reasoned, they pleaded, they, 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 they talked, they preached, but they never went to the government and said, let's make the government get people to become Christians. So wrong view number one is that the government should mandate a religion that every single one of us has to follow. I think we understand that as Americans. Here's view number two that's wrong. Government, it's the other extreme, government should exclude all religions. This is the view of the ACLU. This is the view of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. This is the view that no religion expression should be able to be observed in America, regardless of what religion it is. We should be a religionless society. They object to prayers being said at city council meetings, the, the Ten Commandments being shown in public buildings. As a matter of fact, in Las Vegas last year, there was a high school valedictorian that was going to give a graduation speech. And she was going to talk about Jesus in her speech. And she was told by her principal, you cannot mention Jesus or the gospel. Well, she said, I'm going to mention Jesus in the gospel. So she gets up during her speech and starts to talk about Jesus. And the principal turns off the microphone and silences her because she started talking about Jesus. He infringed upon her freedom of speech at that moment. Now, until something changes in our country, and it could, we still operate under what? The Constitution of the United States of America. It's our legal binding document, unless things change, and they could. But for today, we are a constitution people. What does the First Amendment say? It says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, that's the wrong view number one we just looked at, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech. And here's the bottom line. Christianity has a great place in our nation. Whether people become Christian or not, the values of Christianity have helped this nation to become a civil, God-fearing, law-abiding situation, a, a, a country. If you take the Christian voice out of the public square, we will digress or devolve into moral chaos, regardless of whether people become born again or not. Now here's view number three. This is a weird view, but it's out there. All government is demonic and evil. There's a small minority of evangelical Christians that believe that all government's demonic. All government's under the control of Satan. So you shouldn't run for political office, you shouldn't vote, you shouldn't serve in the military, you should never go to war because everything's under the control of Satan. So just stay out of politics altogether. Now we know from our study of Daniel what? God ordains governments. God's in control. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because most of you probably in here don't don't hold to that view that, that all government is satanic. Usually people that hold to this view are pacifists. They don't believe in any type of war. They don't believe in voting. They don't believe in holding public office. Just stay away from government altogether because it's under the control of Satan. Okay, view number four. Just do evangelism, but not politics. Now, I have to be real careful here because this is where... I tend to, to lean, but I had to think this through, okay? Let me just, before I explain this for you, just say some things up, up front, and you know my heart. I believe strongly in the power of the gospel. If there's going to be any transformation in this country, if there's going to be anything that's going to change, it's because the gospel of Jesus Christ has invaded people's hearts and God saves people by His grace through a radical life change. As a matter of fact, what does Romans 1.16 say? It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now there are some well-meaning people that say, let's just do evangelism and not worry about politics. There is a pastor I admire greatly who has this view. You all know who he is. John MacArthur holds this view. Don't get involved in politics at all. Just preach the gospel. Now I understand what he's saying. Because we want to not put our faith in a political party. We don't want to put our faith in the political process. We don't want to put our faith in somehow the government bringing about the transformation that the Bible talks about. So, so yes, we don't want to, to neglect evangelism. But here's the issue. Here's the issue. As believers, what are we called to do after we're saved? We're saved by grace, Right? through faith in Christ alone. But do you realize that the Bible says we are saved for good works? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is the gospel. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, let's be very clear. How are we saved? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Okay, it's all of grace. We're not saved by our works. But once we are saved, what are we saved to be about doing? Good work. So let me ask you a question. This may be a question you've never thought about. Is being involved in the political process a good work? Can it be redeemed for the glory of Christ? Could it be that in a democratic society today, Christians being involved in the political process is a good work that God has ordained for us for the good of His name? Now, let me be very clear. Just because we're involved in politics doesn't mean that there's going to be revival, there's going to be transformation, there's going to be salvation, there's going to be all this this change, but... Think about how Christians have influenced the political process throughout history and made this world a better place. Let me give you some examples. Historian Alvin Schmidt has argued, he went back and looked at the early days of the Roman Empire. You know a lot about the Roman Empire, pretty brutal, right? Christians in the early days of the Roman Empire were responsible for getting rid of infanticide, abortion, The gladiators, the whole gladiator thing, they got rid of um, child abandonment. And if you trace world societies from the past 2,000 years, the nations that have adopted a Christian worldview have been more civil and they've gotten rid of a lot of brutality that has been going on in this world. Think about things like granting property rights to women, protection for women. Think about prohibiting the burning alive of widows in India. They used to to burn alive widows in India. Christians came in and stopped that. Or some of you may have heard about the binding of young women's feet in in China. Christians were helpful in, in, in ending that practice. Think about William Wilberforce. What did he do? Through his involvement in parliament, he helped end slavery in England. Think about the Christians in our nation that had a voice to end slavery. So, if Christians throughout history, had this attitude, let's just do evangelism and not do politics, I think our world would be a lot different place. If they just had the attitude of, let's not get involved, some of these social ills that we see in our world today may still be going on. Now here's a question you may ask, and I've asked this question, well, you know, it's the end times, persecution's coming, our government's getting worse, why should we even get involved? I mean God's sovereign, right? He's just gonna make this nation socialistic, right? Why get involved? If persecution's coming, if the end times is coming, we can't we just let's just sit back and be passive, let's the chips fall where they where they want to fall, let's just bury our heads in the sand and not do anything, because after all, we're in the end times and we can't help anything. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Let's just not get involved because persecution's coming, we're in the end times. Well, let me just ask you a question. Two questions. Has Christ come back yet? Is persecution here yet? we probably say no. Those two things have not happened in America yet, okay? Or Christ has not come back, and we haven't seen persecution. So, do we want to wait for those things to happen before we react? Or do we want to somehow deal with those things now while we have the freedoms? Here's my concern. God in his sovereignty has given us a window of time to be involved. We don't know how long that time may be. But if we adopted the attitude that, well, we're in the end times and, and persecution's coming, we should just let the chips fall where they may. the day. What if generations in past said that? What if William Wilberforce said, you know what, we're living in the end times and why get rid of slavery? Because after all, persecution's coming and it's not worth it. What if Christians in generations past adopted the attitude of let's just not do anything because we're, we're living in the end times? We'd probably see a different world today. Now here's the other extreme. Here's the fifth view. Just do politics, not evangelism. This is the other view. All of our hopes in a political party, all of our hopes in politics, all of our hopes in a Supreme Court justice, all of our hopes in the right political candidate, nothing about the gospel, nothing about salvation, nothing about about the Bible. It's all, if we just vote the right way and have the right people in power, things will change. And we know that's not true. We know that there's true lasting change. It's going to be because God has done a work in people's hearts to bring about the gospel in people's lives. And so, how can you and I, as responsible Christian citizens, influence the political process for the glory of God? Now again, this is way out of my comfort zone, but I'm going to give you some suggestions. How can you do it? Not we as a church, but how can you as a citizen influence the political system for the glory of God? Well, here's first. Here's, here's reason number one. I think it's very, very important before we try to change laws and we try to point the finger at the big bad world out there and try to get real angry at what's going on, I think first as Christians, we need to look at our own selves and say, am I repentant and am I right with God? Where is my heart? Because you see, as sinners saved by grace, we need to be gripped by the gospel first and foremost and realize that if we're going to want to see societal change, we better be ready for God to do a change in our hearts. And we don't want to be hypocritical. We don't want to be holier than thou. We don't want to be egotistical. We want to be broken. We want to be humble. We want to be contrite. We want to be those that rely upon the power of God. And we look at our own selves first before we look at the big bad world out there. And that's, that's a hard thing to do because it's easy to blame everybody out there but it's a whole lot different to look at ourselves and say am i personally living a life that pleases god am i living in brokenness and humility am i living in the power of the gospel am i living the way god would want me to live before i go out there and try to change what's going on out there now turn with me to first peter this is where we're going to kind of turn in your bibles turn with me to first peter and i want to show you something interesting how peter combines these thoughts into a passage of scripture you remember a few years ago when I p- preached on First Peter, um, we we dealt with this in more detail. But go to First Peter chapter two, nine through seventeen. You're probably very familiar with the nine and ten passage, but it's interesting how, in the flow of thought, uh, Peter kind of brings some issues together. So First Peter chapter two, verse nine. Hopefully, you guys know where First Peter is towards the end, almost at the end of the, the New Testament. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, he's talking here about our salvation, our transformation. We were once in darkness. We were once lost. God's called us out of darkness. God saved us. God's called us to praise him. God's called us to live lives that reflect his glory. We are now his people. Okay, and then how are we to live? Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, you're saved now. Live holy lives. Live differently. Live in light of the gospel. Don't give in to the flesh. Okay, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You see how Peter ties in this whole idea of living in light of the government, being holy, and being separated as a person that's that's centered on the gospel. It's interesting how he ties those things together. And so before we try to change the laws or influence the political process or get all hot and bothered about what's going on out there, Peter says, let's first and foremost realize that we are called out of darkness into light and that our lives as Christians need to reflect the gospel. Our lives need to be holy. Our lives need to be lives that show gratitude for what God has done in his amazing grace. And one thing we need to do is pray for our leaders. Pray for our leaders. First uh, Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says, First of all, then, I urge you bro, that um, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. First, for kings and those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we need to be praying for our leaders, praying for ourselves. Okay, here's number two. We can see biblical examples of situations where believers influence the government we just finished up daniel let's go back for a moment you thought oh man he's out of daniel we're going to go back to daniel for a minute okay daniel chapter four you remember daniel's before king nebuchadnezzar nebuchadnezzar is about to go act like a cow and eat grass we kind of covered that a few months ago What does Daniel do in his position of authority? Remember, Daniel's one of the highest positions in the land. He goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and he influences him to make a decision based upon how it's going to affect the whole nation. Daniel 4.27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. So here's Daniel, a godly man, going to the king and saying, King... You need to start practicing mercy to the oppressed in your nation. You need to change the way you govern. You need to change the way that you're treating your people. And so Daniel used his position to influence the culture in a godly way. What about Jeremiah? When the Israelites were to be taken over by Babylon, and Babylon's going to come in and ransack Jerusalem, burn down the temple, burn down the walls, gather them and take them off into captivity, Jeremiah says, here's how I want you to live in a pagan land. And it may be different than what you had thought. You may have thought, Jeremiah said, I want you to have a revolt. I want you to fight back. I want you to to do all these things to try to to get a revolution. That's not what Jeremiah says. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. He says, seek the welfare of the city seek the well seek the shalom of the city get involved in making the city a better place now we don't know exactly how that plays out but one of the ways that we can help sterling or northeastern colorado be a better place when we seek the welfare of the city is by getting involved in things that make this a better place to live think about joseph he was the highest official in pharaoh's court he influenced some major national decisions in Genesis 41 through 45. Think about Moses. Moses marched in to Pharaoh and demanded to let his people go free. So he went to the highest person in the land and, and, and tried to influence the political process. Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. Esther became queen. She used her influence to help make some decisions in Persia regarding the Jews. Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was put in prison because he got in the face of King Herod, accused him of adultery. Luke three eighteen through 20. It's interesting. This is what John the Baptist. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them and he locked up John in prison. John goes to the top dog and says, what you're doing is wrong. Now he got in prison for it. Now think about Paul for a moment. What do we know about Paul? Greatest evangelist in the New Testament, greatest church planner in the New Testament, greatest missionary in the New Testament. But do you realize that when it came time for him to be locked up in prison, what did he do? He appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen and went before the leaders. He just didn't lie down like a, like a, like a, like a dead dog and say, well, I guess it's going to happen. He said, I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. I'm going to go appeal to my rights. And so that's why he makes that travel all the way to Rome to talk to the leaders. Now, uh, he goes before Felix in Acts 24. He said, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now we don't know what Paul talked about there with Felix, but we do know that Paul goes to one of the highest ranking governing officials, uses his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal to his, his situation. So you see some biblical examples of people using influence positively in the government. Now here's the third one. This is the one we don't like. We must live under the authority of these God-ordained governments. Turn over to Romans chapter 13. This will be the last place I'll make you turn. Romans 13. We must live under the authority of these God-ordained governments. Romans 13, I'm giving you basically the three major passages on how Christians relate to the government, so that's where we're looking this morning. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you should also pay taxes. I know Mike and Mickey like that. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Very clear here that we are to live in subjection and submission under whatever governing authority we find ourselves in. Right now we happen to be under American authority. But here's another interesting passage of scripture that I think is somewhat prophetic. Proverbs 21.1 21, 20, 21, says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So, who's in in control of President Obama? Is he in control? It says God's in control. That's kind of a scary thought. Both ways. Now, I don't know where that landed for you, but that's an interesting thought. (laughs) We don't know the future course of our nation okay, it could become more secular. We probably know it will become more secular. It could become more socialistic. We don't know. We really don't know what the future of our nation holds. But here's one thing that we cannot do. We as Christians cannot wring our hands in fear, and worry somehow that God's not on his throne, and somehow that we um, get very ethnocentric and think... I'm going to talk about ethnocentrism for a moment. Ethnocentric is this idea that everything revolves around America. Some people have this idea that America is this sheltered nation that would never experience persecution, that would never go through hard times, and God would just not allow that to happen to us. Because after all, we're what? Americans. Would God ever let everything bad happen to us as Americans? No. We're Americans. Does God ever promise Americans anything? Now, I'm as patriotic as I come, and tomorrow I'm going to be out there watching the Fourth of July. We're going to be singing, you know, listening to the songs. We enjoy the freedoms that we have. But let me just say something. What would happen if every freedom that we have as Americans is stripped away? What will we do? Is our faith in America, or is our faith in Christ? We can become very myopic in thinking that everything is about America when we have brothers and sisters around this world that are suffering for their faith. There are Christians today getting butchered for their faith, getting burned alive for their faith, suffering for their faith as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we as Americans aren't suffering the way they they are. And we need to remember something. Every freedom we have is a gift from God that he and his grace has allowed us to have. And he could take it away just like that if he wanted to. Now, what about the wrath of God? Do you think America's under the wrath of God? I don't know what you, you, know what you think about that. When we think of wrath of God, what do we think of? Tornadoes, hurricanes, and fire from heaven. We want to see, like, Sodom and Gomorrah fly down on San Francisco so we look back and say, ooh, yeah, they got what's coming to them. That's what we want to see, right? The wrath of God falling down in fire on our nation. You know, New Orleans, Las Vegas, San Francisco getting blown up because of all the sinners there. That's the wrath of God. Hopefully you don't think that because there's lost people there that need Jesus. That's the active wrath of God that you often see in the Bible. But do you realize there's something maybe a little scarier called the passive wrath of God? If you go back to Romans chapter 1, God says some very interesting things there. Instead of just raining down fire on sinners, God says, I'm just going to be hands-off and let you do what you want to do. If you want gross immorality, go for it. If you want outrageous materialism, go for it. If you want to do all these things, go for it. I'm hands-off. That's the wrath of God. Because what happens if you go for it? You may experience pleasure, but God just says, I'm taking every influence on my life out of you, and I'm letting you go the the, the course of how sin's going to lead you down the path of destruction. That's a scary thing to think about, God's wrath. That God just says, if you want all these things, America, have them. My hands are off. That's another way of looking at the wrath of God. Now, there is an exception here. We're not supposed to just obey the government carte blanche what happens if the government calls you to do something that goes against your conscience for example what happens if the government tomorrow says you can no longer worship as christians will we stop worshiping no we go underground or we do whatever we need to do what if the government comes along and says you can't evangelize well what are we going to do Find creative ways to evangelize because we don't want to be disobedient to the Great Commission. There are some things that we have to obey God rather than the government. As a matter of fact, we find that this happens um, in Acts chapter 5 with uh, Peter and John when they were out sharing the gospel and they got in trouble and in Acts 5, 27-29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. Now, here's where I'm left. I don't want to leave with you guys thinking politics, okay? I want to leave with you guys thinking gospel. So here's the question I have. How does this intersect with the gospel? If I had the, the, the right to vote and the right to share the gospel, I would share the gospel every time, hands down. Why? If, you, if it was between voting and sharing the gospel, which one would you choose? You've got to go with the gospel, because that's the only thing God has promised to bring power for the salvation of all who believe the gospel. Now, cultural transformation may happen through being involved in the political process. There may be some good things that happen in our nation when Christians get involved. And we should get involved. And God in his sovereignty may allow things to get better. We don't know. But there's no excuse to just sit back and say, well, things are going to be the way they are. Cultural transformation may happen as Christians become salt and light. But we need to guard against ethnocentrism. What in the world is ethnocentrism? It's this whole idea that everything focuses on america being an american do you realize that god is at work in other nations that god is doing things in other places that we need to have the idea of a a gospel culture where every tribe tongue and language and people group gather around the 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 throne now i'm not saying we shouldn't be patriotic okay i'm not i'm not saying you shouldn't be patriotic but if patriotism leads to pride leads to egotism, and leads you to have this blind view that everything just revolves around America, I think you've missed the boat because God's vision is so much bigger than just America. God's got a global vision. Do you realize there are over 3,000 people groups in this world today that have never heard the name of Jesus? And we've got about 30 churches meeting this morning with people hearing the name about Jesus. 30,000, I mean 3,000. I don't know. I think that's somewhere close to 1.6 billion people on our planet today have never heard the name of Jesus. That to me is a bigger issue than who's in the White House, personally, because I think that's a greater issue. That's an eternal issue. Now, regardless of what nation we find ourselves in, we're sending the McDowells off to Russia. They're going to be living in Russia. Whether you end up living in India or Russia or Japan or America, or regardless of whether America becomes better or America becomes more like Western Europe, we really don't know. But we need to understand something that in God's sovereignty, he may be allowing some things to happen for a purpose. And one of the things he may be doing in this nation is refining his church. Separating the wheat from the chaff and saying, I want the real true Christians to stand up And God may be doing that. And God also may be doing something to open our eyes to a gospel culture. We are not defined. What should not define you ultimately is being an American. Now, yes, you're an American. Be proud to be American, yes. When Lee Greenwood's played, you can stand up and, you know, cry and wave your flag and do all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But what should ultimately define you is the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not your nationality, not your citizenship, because none of that stuff's going to matter on the final day. But, tomorrow, we're going to celebrate the freedoms we have as a nation. We're going to celebrate the freedoms of those that went before us that sacrificed. A lot of men and women have shed blood and sacrificed so that we can meet here this morning. And we don't want to take that lightly. But, The greatest sacrifice came in one who shed his blood so that we could have ultimate liberty and ultimate freedom. His name is Jesus Christ. He died so that we could be adopted into God's family. He died so that we could have a home in heaven. He died so that we could have eternal life. And we need to realize that we are not citizens of America ultimately. We are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says this, Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, should you be involved in politics? Yes. Should you exert influence? Yes. Do we want America to be a better place? Yes. Who would not want that? But ultimately, ultimately, let's be a gospel people, a gospel people, a people who fix our eyes on Jesus, a people who live and lie to the cross, a people who take up our cross daily and die to self and live for the glory of Christ, a people who are are passionate about seeing unreached people groups come to faith in Christ, a people who are defined not so much by the American flag or American nationality, but we're defined by the gospel, not the red, white, and blue, but the red blood of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, when we're in heaven politics is not going to matter. There's going to be one king and one nation under God. Jesus on his throne, and around him is not going to be just Americans, but every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group gathered around that throne in worship to the one true Christ. And so I think that it's important for us to realize that what trumps everything is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And to be honest with you, I really don't know how to end I really don't know how to call you to anything. Um, so I guess pray for me that we would, we would understand what needs to happen in these moments. It could be that, well, let's just do this. That first point that I that I talked about, looking at ourselves first before we look at the big bad world out there. Maybe there's some sin issues in our lives this morning that we need to get right with God about. Maybe there's some planks in our own eyes that, we're try- that we need to get out before we get the speck out of the, the nation's eyes. So maybe we just need to go before the Lord in repentance. What does Second Chronicles 7.14 say, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repay, pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. We can't wait upon the government to change. If true revival is going to happen, it's going to be because God's people have sought the face of the Lord. So let's spend just a few moments seeking the face of the Lord this morning. Asking him to search your heart. Father, I thank you that you've allowed us to live in a free nation. Father, I thank you for the sacrifices of men and women that have gone before us to pay literally in blood for the freedom that we have this morning to worship. We do want to remember our troops and our veterans and those that have gone before us and have fought in harm's way and won battles that we may have never even heard about to protect our freedom. Lord, I thank you that we can sleep securely at night knowing that in some ways we're protected. Lord, I do lift up our leaders in this nation. Lord, I lift up our president and forgive me for not praying for him more often. I pray that you would give him wisdom, godly wisdom, wisdom, I pray, Lord, that he would surround himself with Christian counsel and that Lord he would seek your will. Lord, I pray for our Congress. I pray for our senators and our representatives, especially those that represent us here in Colorado. They would make decisions based upon your will and your word. Lord, I pray for our governor of Colorado. Pray for our city leaders, our state leaders. Lord, I pray for us as individuals that you would give us the wisdom to know how to get involved while we still have the opportunity to do so. And Father, I just pray that in your sovereignty, if things get worse, we would not wring our hands in desperation, but we would see it as an opportunity for your true church to shine. And there would be the saving of many lives. And we do pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, even today, Lord, that are are living in fear of someone coming in and taking off their pastor and killing him or killing their families or burning their churches down because they have to worship in places that are hostile to the gospel. May we never take for granted the freedoms we have here. And most of all, Jesus, may we wave the banner of your cross, your gospel. And Lord, we wait for that day where every tribe, tongue, language, and people, representatives from every tribe, tongue, language, and people will be gathered around the throne. There'll be one nation, and that will be the nation of Jesus. One culture, the culture of the gospel. It may be many different colors, but Lord, we're all under your banner. And my prayer this morning is there's nobody that's, if there's anybody in this room here that's never trusted in you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, today would be their day of salvation. You would even use a message on politics to change a person's heart. If you can use a talking donkey, Lord, I'm sure you can use a message like this. So Father, in your will and in your ways, would you do only what you can do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen all right, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> and you probably won't hear it for a long time. <laughs> next week, um, we're going to have a commissioning service for Kent and Rachel McDowell as they go off to Russia. Also, our youth will be coming back from camp. We'll be hearing some testimonies from them. So my sermon will only be about 15 minutes next week. So for any reason to come by next week, 15-minute sermon. But I want to do something special this morning. Our kids and our adults are getting ready to leave actually this afternoon to go down to Glorietta for camp. Um, And some will be going out and doing missions projects. So everybody